Hello, and welcome to The Art of Listening, a podcast for classical music lovers, composers, conductors, and musicians. My name is Jeff Bradbury, and I'll be the host today. And of course, with me as always is Gabriel Gordon. Gabe, how are you today? Welcome to the program. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm so looking forward to talking with George again. I am so excited for today's episode. Today we're going to be talking to a good friend of both of ours, composer, conductor, uh, humanitarian, amazing person, and we're going to learn all about his history. We're excited to have our good friend George Matthew on. Before we get to the interview, Gabe, how are things? And I noticed that you've been doing some pretty cool stuff on your YouTube channel. Was that a, a Brandenburg 3 that I saw recently up there? Yeah, all all nine parts uh, for the first time. I was able to get nine parts on the screen and uh, in you know in audio, and it I think it turned out really really nicely uh, to be able to put all of that together. Uh, it was it was a challenge for me, but um, I think it turned out just fine. We're going to be doing a show sometime coming up all about J.S. Bach, about Brandenburg, and why this was an important project, not only for Gabe to do, but for you guys to check out. So if you're a fan of Brandenburg 3, if you have students that are working on it, perhaps you're a conductor and you're doing it with your orchestra, check out all the great stuff over at gabrielgordon.net forward slash YouTube. And Gabe, I want to just jump right in here to our interview. Um, Tell us a little bit about our guest today. George and I have known each other since uh, 2002. And uh, he's he's a, an extremely good friend uh, that uh, we met at uh, conductor camp, the conductors retreat at Madomic. And I'm looking forward to speaking about that and his organization, Music for Life International. We're certainly looking forward to hearing more about that. Let's bring on to the podcast today, Mr. George Matthew. George, how are you today? Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. It's nice to be here admired you both from afar um, <laughs> and uh, I mean I of course we know each other from uh, various places uh, you know it's interesting Gabe uh, you're talking about meeting yeah at uh, the conductors retreat all those years ago the funny thing is we only met in the flesh as it were right we, we actually <laughs> knew each other, knew of each other for several years before that. We just didn't connect the two. You know, he didn't, Gabe did not know that I was George Matthew, and I did not know that he was the Gabriel Gordon. Um, And there were, you know, there were a number of other people uh, in our mutual uh, frame of reference who also had the definite article before their names. Well, uh, I mean, so just in, in really short uh, description of that, your roommate in college was my roommate in Aspen, and uh, that that he he was in Aspen, and we knew each other just before you guys were were roommates in Boston, and uh, my high school friend was also your friend at the same time and it was yeah. it was kind of another revelatory moment when when george said wait a minute you're gabe <laughs> <laughs> we um let's this get too esoteric we're both alumni a few years removed from each other uh of the manhattan school of music in new right. york city and so we had uh, some 
common reference points. Uh, <laughs> as it turned out, when we met in 2002, we had reference points that were five or six, five to ten years before. We also had reference points that were five to ten years in the future. We didn't know it at the time. Right. You know, because uh, we ended up doing, you know, I, one of Gabe's teachers ended up being a central part of some of my projects later, right. along with Gabe. And so, anyway, the world just got, so, uh, the counterpoint is profoundly invertible. So let's talk a little bit about that, because, I mean, I, I, you know, we don't, we all have common bonds here, right? I mean, I remember saying to Gabe, I want to go to Madamic, and I, I want to explain to people who are listening what Madamic is in a second here. And Gabe says, good, you'll meet my friend George. And I remember, George, the first thing I did was I came up to you and said, hey, um, I'm Gabe's student. Um, love me. Kind of one of those. <laughs> and and you, you were very wonderful uh, all of the years. I think I was up there for four years. Uh, three alone, and then one with my, uh, I, I guess she was my wife or my, my soon-to-be wife playing the bass up there. And um, to kind of clue people in on the show here, we're talking about their conductor's retreat at Madomic. Would somebody be interested in uh, sharing a little bit about what this is, what makes it so magical, and uh, why does everybody come together on the side of a lake in the middle of Maine every single summer? I think I'll go. Uh, the conductor's retreat um, is uh, the brainchild of a remarkable conducting teacher and uh, one would have to say musical philosopher of sorts, Kenneth Kiesler, uh, and who also happens to be one of the great conducting pedagogues in the history of the craft. And uh, he has uh, created this sanctuary uh, which is probably the best word to describe it, for uh, not only the craft and the art of conducting, but also for a certain kind of exploration of music itself and how music uh, defines musicians as human beings and how uh, conducting defines conductors as human beings. And, and what this, you know, uh, often misunderstood uh, profession and craft um, means for those of us who practice it, for those of us who come into contact with the practitioners, and the kinds of possibilities it holds, the craft of conducting, for creating community in our time and place. And you know, that's sort of a little bit esoteric, but I think uh, that is the heart of the matter. Um, and so, you know, if we could launch into a discussion about conducting. Um, and because I think, um, you know, one of the things that connects us uh, all three of us, and music, is this notion of, um, you know, why music? I mean, why why are we related through music as opposed to being related in any other any number of other ways? 
all three of us are parents. We have things to show, share about what that means. We are all children of yeah. somebody. Uh, we will probably be grandparents someday. And, uh, and yet, we talk about music. And music is the heart of what we are talking. So uh, in, a, in a certain way, the conductor's retreat, really unlike any other place uh, where, you know, certainly short-term places where music is discussed and conducting is discussed, and ensemble music making is discussed, uh, tries to explore that. And it is in no small measure the because of the focus of our uh, shared teacher, Kenneth Kiesler. You know, one of the things that Ken always does beautifully is he starts off the, the, the camp um, with a bunch of people who all have a common goal. They love music. They all have a passion for it. And over the course of 24 hours or less, he puts them all into groups and you become a family extremely quickly. And then over the week, 10 days, whatever, I forget how long it is, um, some amazing things happen to you. And at the end, I, I can say this for all three or four of my years, you are a completely different person leaving that camp than you are coming to that camp. Gabe, I want to ask you, and I'll ask George uh, also, what does the re conductor's retreat at Madomic mean to you? Well, uh, for for my part, like like you said, it, it truly was life changing. Um, I'll, I'll I'll never forget, and you know, it's one of the first things I said to you, Jeff, when when you were preparing to go there. Uh, when when you go there, it's required that you actually have to get in the lake, <laughs> and you know, using the lake really as a metaphor for jumping in and uh, really, really understanding what, what your life can be when you, when you just jump in wholeheartedly. And one of the things that Ken really liked to talk about and likes to talk about, I'm, I'm sure, is, you know, the relationship between who you are um, off the podium and uh, therefore who you are on the podium and how because what we do as conductors is so esoteric, uh, it, when, when you get on the podium, so many things about yourself become obvious to the people in front of you and, and as well as the people behind you in the audience. And so working on yourself is integral actually to the craft there. And so that, that, you know, made me look at a whole bunch of things about myself during my time here. I think I was there for three years uh, myself. And every single time I went there, I grew not only as a conductor, but as a person. George, as we just mentioned, you, you start there with let's say 30 conductors all waving the stick in a different direction to a different beat with a different idea of what a piece sounds like. And by the end of the conference, you have 30 conductors all on the same stage, on the same podium, conducting the same piece. Um, so a few metaphors in there, but uh, what, does the, what does the conductor's retreat mean to you? 
Well, the conductor's retreat is a was a kind of uh, chrysalis phase for me. I would say it. There, you see, the thing about um, if I if I may digress a little bit, there is a place in the finale of the Ninth Symphony of Beethoven uh, where Beethoven, um, you know, poses the problem of um, of existence of music of sound of singing of community and. We hear the uh, this great recitative of the, the bass soloist, uh, but not played by a, not sung, played by instrumentalists. And the the words the question is, uh, friends, we shouldn't do that. Make this noise. Let's do something else, <laughs> right? And the question is, what is that something else? <laughs> and the first question. The first attempt at answering the question is a, a look back at the first movement of the symphony. And you hear a little snippet of the first. And the recitative comes back, and it's very clear the answer is no, that's not it. <laughs> and, and it interrupts that. And then the second movement is tritempa, and again it's interrupted, and the answer is no. And then, so, you know, these are memories. And a memory of the first movement has come back. A memory of the second movement is brought up. And the answer is no. And then a memory of the third movement, which is introduced gently and also refuted gently. And the answer is still no. So three times we've had memories set up. Uh, and the answer is no. And then the memory, and then now that you've had the setup is that you've had these three memories, these three little snippets, flashbacks or neurological vignettes or something. <laughs> um, and then you get a fourth one. A fourth memory is produced. And it's a memory of the fifth of the fourth movement, the memory of the ode to joy. Uh, and the answer is yes. But it hasn't happened yet. Right. <laughs> Uh, and he, Beethoven presents you with a memory of something that hasn't happened yet. Hmm. Now, it so happens that the answer is yes, because then you ha then the, the Ode to Joy is presented. You know, actually, it's a little snippet from the King Stephen Overture. <laughs> <laughs> but it's the, mem the memory is... It's the you know it's the cell of the ode to joy and there's no question Beethoven is a great cellular guy, um, and um, you know this is his method. There's no uh, ambiguity about that. But it's a memory of something that hasn't happened, and the that something is a song that says "Alle Menschen werden Brüder," etc. And if you look at the counterpoint, it, I mean, the melodic structure, it makes sense. Everything makes sense. But what I want to draw here is this idea that the, the most organic thing about a thing or about ourselves or about a relationship is often um, not located where we think it is in terms of time and space. What is interesting is a hundred years later, 
from Beethoven, 100 years before Madomic. Um, <laughs> Albert Einstein posits this in his general theory of relativity that and three events a b and c in in einstein's case you know inter inter uh, i mean uh, stellar on the cosmic scale right. events happen a b c and they may not happen in the same order right. depending on where the observer is located uh, that your perception alters the thing that you perceive. And so uh, what Madomic, in a way, summed up the conductor's retreat, sort of crystallized for me, was that the thing that I thought I was doing, which was preparing for the future, was maybe not what I was doing. Yeah that maybe I was uh, pulling the future for, back to influence the past and pulling the past, observing the past from a vantage point of beyond. Yeah. And, um, and a number of things happened as a result. Uh, you know, to, I mean, my relationship with music certainly altered a little bit. Uh, but more importantly, it was an affirmation of what I was looking for, or what I had al already uh, sensed or intuited. Because I remember going to Ken and saying, Ken, I need you to, uh, I was in a particular chapter of my life looking for a conducting teacher. and I applied to a million schools and spent most of a decade taking auditions and 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 in the process studied with everybody um, right. and uh, so I went to Ken and I said Ken I, I, I need I need to find a mentor are you, are you the mentor uh, that I'm looking for and um, and I remember he said I don't know he said, I don't know the answer to your question. I mean, and it was one of these things where he generally had answers to most of our questions. You know, right. uh, he made us answer them. But in this case, he said, I don't know. And then we, but he said, do you really want an answer? I said, yes. So we, we, we sat together and we kind of created uh, an answer to the question along the lines of what uh, Beethoven had to say, and as it turns out, a number of others had to say, Elgar shows up large in this conversation. But the, the, the thing we found out together in that summer, over the weeks, and you know, you start with a question. You, uh, the first day, first week, he says, you know, you have a meeting, and there is a question, what do you want from Madomic? And then at the end, you have another meeting. Is it, did you get it? Did you, is this something that we'll be working on? And you set up a schedule to revisit the question and, and find answers. But the thing that emerged was something that had never been formulated in so many words before for me. And that was, and there was also a wonderful solfege teacher there called Marianne Ploger. Yeah. Marianne 
also believed that solfege was just one of hearing was about unlocking the ears as a means to unlocking all the other senses that we have, not just the five, but she talked about 98 senses. Right. And, um, and, wow. uh, and what Ken and what Ken and I came up together was uh, that I was actually not looking for a mentor. <laughs> <laughs> that I had a mentor. And the mentor was located within. And what I needed were the tools of getting the mentor to be audible and be listening, uh, shutting up my own inner ear so I could hear what the ment my inner mentor was saying. It's very similar to Marianne's notion of sight reading. She talks about the inner coach. And the eagle, uh, the eagle must maintain the altitude as you sight reading or solfeging your way through a piece of music. And that if you get stressed or if you look back uh, or if you acknowledge a mistake, the eagle loses altitude. And uh, when the eagle ends up nose in the ground, that is when the uh, exercise stops. You are no longer sight reading. You. <laughs> you know, I, remember, I remember going through those classes and 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 leaving, um, really like feeling. Well, I mean, the best the best word is elevated. Just you know, being able to to see the entire score. That's 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 really in that place was where I realized. Oh, you actually can see the whole page, as as a gamut, if you're if you're flying high above it. And those those questions that Ken used to pose, I mean, they're really when when I was going through it, I was like, my goodness, this is this is like a Zen koan when you're <laughs> when when you're going when you're going through Zen training, you know, you're asking these incredibly important questions that you're not really entirely sure you understand even, you know, the nature of the question and part of all of that is this big exploration uh, for yourself. You know, George, after uh, after we were at Madamic, uh, you know, we we you know continued to see each other and, and you know work together at, at Manhattan School of Music. And you know, speaking of Beethoven Nine and 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 Manhattan School of Music, we. Uh, we were, you know, around together in in, in two thousand and one, uh, when uh, when un unfortunately the uh, nine eleven occurred, and two thousand two. Uh, the, you know, I went and looked at some of at the chronology. Oh yeah. You and I met in two thousand two. That's right. Okay. So you did your nine eleven memorial just before two thousand one. Yeah. In 2001, yeah. So, so what? Yeah. So it was just before we met. That's right. But it's That's the thing. This is Beethoven speaking. Exactly. You see, this is the. the, the <laughs> it, and, and that's the thing. It's like I was, I was, you know, telling the future in the past. <laughs> so we, uh, you know, I did, I, I did, uh, conducted Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in reaction. To that, and then uh, the that? Next, well, that was in October of two thousand and one. 
Where where was it? Oh, we we did it um, in Ocean Grove, New Jersey, at the Great Auditorium. Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah, and uh, I, I I put it together in like three weeks. You know, basically didn't sleep or, or eat or, or anything, <laughs> and um, I just you know remarkable remarkable moment uh, in 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 my life. Just uh, you know thinking about. Um, all of these things and, and reacting to it and, and then actually putting it together and doing it and saying, oh, I would love to do this like all the time. You know? And then and then you and I met the next summer and uh, we started we started meeting in, in New York because you were at Manhattan School of Music. And um, I kind of got hot to do it again uh, because it uh, was... I, I can't remember actually what happened. It was was it the tsunami, I believe. That no, occurred? no. What it's that's what, the uh, that's the popular myth. Okay. Uh, it was around that time, and it was a South Asian context. There was an earthquake in Kashmir. Right. Uh, and this is almost five years later. This is six years later. Okay. So, um, in October of two thousand five there was a uh, major earthquake in the mountains of Kashmir, in the Himalayas. And um, um, it was, um, you know, off the grid a little bit because uh, it was in a Muslim country, mostly in Pakistan, those little bit, the parts of India, the, the little bits of Kashmir on the other side of the Indian border were also affected. Um, and. Uh, it sort of came and went on the screens of the mass media. Um, and and I remember thinking this might, you know, how, how, does, how one might respond. And there were a number of conversations that happened uh, with uh, a, a rather large number of people, um, right. including some diplomats. Um, Ken, Ken was around at Manhattan School at that point. Sir Colin Davis was around, uh, and he was one of the people encouraging me to sort of uh, think about doing it in a, a, a larger rather than a smaller context. Um, and uh, Ken as well. And we, uh, and gradually, without a whole lot of forethought, uh, our a humanitarian concept materialized. Uh, well, you know, I remember you telling me, George, uh, that you were in an elevator with Glenn Dickner. <laughs> no, no. No? I was in an elevator with Gene Drucker. Oh, it was with Gene. Okay. <laughs> I was with, in an elevator with Gene. That's my just, violin teacher. Yeah. Just gone with Gene Drucker, who's one of the violinists of the Emerson Quartet, right. having just gone to visit uh, Clive Gillinson, the director of Carnegie Hall, right. to see if it was possible for us to use the hall. And, and, um, and I remember uh, Clive Gillinson said, um, 
oh, it's a wonderful idea. And no, I cannot give you the whole for free. And, uh, and, but you should do it. I think you should do it here. And you should, um, you know, and um, he didn't say it in so many words, but what he meant was pay full fare. Um, right. and, and he said, you know, I'll help you. I'll, I'll, I'll make a contribution. Um, turned out he made a rather modest contribution, but a contribution nevertheless. Yeah. And uh, but it was a very inspiring kind of rejection. I mean, it wasn't, you know, so I I came out of that meeting with, uh, you know, on uh, on wings and I blew into the elevator and I was talking to somebody else who had accompanied me to Carnegie Hall and Gene was standing next to me and he said, excuse me, are you George Matthew? And I said, yes. He said, well, I've heard about your project with Beethoven 9, and I mentioned it to the other members of the quartet. They're not in town, unfortunately, but I am, and I'd like to play. Do you have, <laughs> do you have an orchestra? And I said, um, we're, we're working on that right now. I didn't tell him that he was the first one. <laughs> I said, now we do. And now we have, we, have we, one, have we have one person to do Beethoven 9, and soon we'll have a few more. But it was, it was one of those things in that, in that sort of environment, the, the spirit of, I don't know, possibility and inspiration and generosity all merged into this etwas angenehmer, as Beethoven says, something more, uh, you know, the often used translation of that in the recitative of the finale is something more pleasant, but it isn't. The word is, it comes from Naaman, which is the root, and Naaman means to take or right. to use. Mm. And angenehm is, an, is usable. And angenehmer is more usable, <laughs> useful. You know, it's, a, it's an yeah. interesting uh, etymology if you actually look at the roots of these things. And, and so here was something, here was a moment where, uh, you know, good fortune to some extent, and the magic of New York, because all these people, you run into people like this on the elevator. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I proceeded to run into more people over the next few minutes and hours that made this explode. Uh, because a few minutes later, I ran into um, a great cellist, Alan Stepansky, who was right. a cello faculty at Manhattan School, former associate principal cello of the New York Philharmonic. And he, uh, he was, you know, we hadn't seen each other for a little while, and he said hello, and he said, what are you doing, and how is everything going? And I said, well, I'm doing Beethoven 9 at Carnegie Hall. He said, oh, really? And I told him a little bit about the project, and he said, oh, wonderful. Do you have a principal cellist? And I said, no. <laughs> uh, I said, no. He said, well, I'd love to do it if, it, if we can make it work. Who's your concert master? And I said, uh, well, uh, um, well, uh, well, I, Gene is going to play, but I don't think he's going to be. I don't think he really wants to be concertmaster. He's. He said, "Oh well." He he. Uh, and Alan said, without skipping a beat, in the hallway. He was. We're standing in the lobby of Manhattan School of Music, and he says, 
let's ask Glenn Dictoreau, the concept master of the New York Philharmonic. Yeah, Glenn Dictoreau is like approximately at that time, Glenn uh, had the same uh, stature to me as Gregory Peck or, um, you know, Christopher Plummer or something. Right, and, right. Um, and I said, oh, you mean Glenn Dictoreau? He said yes. And he said uh, he he said yes. Why didn't you ask him? So uh, so I said okay. He said tell him. I said tell him. You know let's invite him together. So I said great. So I went over to the com to the computer lab at Manhattan School and I logged into my AOL account. Right. Uh, or Yahoo, I think it was at the time. And I looked at the New York Philharmonic uh, website, and on the staff directory, some of the staff had email addresses. And if you looked at the email formulation, it was uh, last name followed by first initial at newyorkphil.org was their email. So I said, ah, that's, let's invent Glenn Dictoreau's email. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote, you know, dictorog at nyphil.org. And of course, it bounced. There was no such email. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And uh, nothing happened. So then uh, I was sitting there and scratching my head, and I said, mm, uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> and I, as I got up to leave from my little workstation, the computer beeped, and it was an email from... Tim, Timothy Cobb, who was then the principal bass of the Metropolitan Opera. And Tim and, uh, had just heard in the previous hour that, that uh, Gene Drucker was a good friend. They were in the middle of a chamber music rehearsal somewhere. And they, Gene had told him about this project. And Tim said, oh, I'd love to play. Um, so Glenn said, so, Tim, uh, so Gene wrote to me and said, hey, um, you know, Tim Cobb uh, wants to play. Have you got a principal bass? If you haven't, you know, Tim is the principal of the Met, and you should, I think it'd be nice to have ask him. He's okay. <laughs> <laughs> right? right. And, then, and in the same email, he volunteered his wife, uh, Roberta Cooper, yeah. who is the distinguished cellist. Yeah. Um, and so uh, suddenly there was, you know, I'm still looking for Glenn Dictor's email. <laughs> and so I quickly dashed off emails to everybody saying yes, of course. Um, and then, uh, no, and then I, I mean, uh, what to do? There was nothing, no response. So I got up and walked out. And as I left the doorway, who should appear but uh, the principal flute of the New York Philharmonic and um, the, uh, the former associate principal horn, Jerome Ashby, the lady mm -hmm. who passed away some years ago. And uh, the two of them, uh, I had played for their students at school. And, you know, so we all knew, everybody knew each other. And, uh, and so he, uh, they were friendly. And I said, to, we're, you know, I said, uh, to ask Robert, I said, Robert, would you, I'm trying to find Glenn Dictoreau's email. 
would you have it by any chance? And he said, oh, of course I do. So he pulled out his little diary and gave me, I said, it never occurred to me to ask somebody. Um, <laughs> so I asked Glenn. So I sent Glenn now a, you know, a, a, a message saying, and within, I don't know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, I got this uh, reply saying, oh, it sounds like a wonderful project, and I would love to be associated, but unfortunately, I cannot make the two rehearsals that you describe uh, on the day before and the day of. I can only be there for the day of and the concert, but I can't do the rehearsal the previous day. And I said, ah. Well, that's all right. I said, uh, you know, and he was being very, he was being very respectful of the project and of. Right. Me as the conductor, who I didn't know from, uh, you know, hole in the wall. But the thing was, he's, so I said, um, I said, maybe if we don't look at this as a problem, but look at it as a possibility of some sort, um, maybe we might have better luck. So I said, Glenn, what would happen? Could Maybe we could make it a special treat for one of your advanced students. Um, and I said, um, you know, we, uh, who could, you know, I, and by this time we had already uh, discussed the possibility of Gene Drucker sitting with Glenn in the frame. Right. And they, you know, they had known each other from oh, there. From, from Juilliard, right? For a long time before. And they had even sat in orchestra together. The last time Gene had played in an orchestra, it was with Glenn, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Anyway. The thing was, uh, and Glenn wrote back and said, oh, I think that might be a wonderful idea. Let me think who that could be. Well, to cut a long story short, that person, that <laughs> advanced student, turned out not of Glenn's, but of Jean's, who uh, sat in as concertmaster on the first rehearsal, was Gabe. Right. Yeah. And and if the BBC showed up at the first rehearsal and <laughs> memorialized Gabe and that moment with a photograph that is still on the BBC website. So and 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 the thing was is that at at Carnegie Hall, um, you know, I remember, uh, you know, because because Glenn did did come and 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 was was concertmaster. Um, for for you know some the the concert and uh, just sitting there saying you know oh my goodness like uh, you know here are here's Glenn Dictoro and then sitting next to him is Gene Drucker and then whoop, little old me <laughs> on the third chair it was just uh, a marvel yeah, we, we had to arrange you know we yeah. had to keep the integrity of the sections so exactly. Gabe just moved the, the outside. First violins just moved back a seat. Exactly, so everybody was still, you know, inside outside integrity was was maintained. But it was one of those amazing moments. I remember the first that first rehearsal with you, Gabe. I remember uh, in the scherzo of the Ninth Symphony, starting it and realizing that it really did not require any kind of timekeeping or conducting in the conventional way. And so I stopped 
because it was so fabulous. And people just coalesced and coalesced. And that has been my method with the scherzo of Beethoven 9 ever since. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, I've, you know, obviously learned it better, I know it better now over the years. Uh, and uh, recently, uh, last, um, two years ago now, uh, I got to do it again uh, with a number of the same people. Yeah. And we came back to the party trick and the scherzo where I, you know, start it and then it, it, it goes by itself. And really only the only thing you have to do is sort of smile at people before their entrances. And there's a fermata or two that you have to release and, and get back. Uh, and, uh, and in fact, there's quite a lot to do musically. There's balances to be sorted out and, the, you know, counterpoint flying around. Anyway, uh, and I remembered that first time when it was all sort of new. Right. Uh, and um, and it was very, very moving. To the, the, the amazing thing about that, uh, you know, I mean, the, and we'll talk about Music for Life and, and um, uh, Music for Life International, the organization that came out of that, uh, that humanitarian concert and its its successors but the thing about the, that moment was it cracked open it really uh, turned inside out this whole phenomenology of the conductor and the orchestra as a fixed relationship mm -hmm. The orchestra was not being, I was not the leader in the conventional sense. I was sitting in the driver's seat because there was only one of those. But everybody was driving in, in various ways, uh, including the people who are not section leaders. And what there was was not only a sense of camaraderie, which there was in spades, more than there would be in normal situations. But there was also this, I mean, I'm talking musically, not socially or from a humanitarian angle, but, uh, or maybe I am talking from humanitarian. Yeah. <laughs> Music, musicians are often in need of humanitarian intervention. Uh, and this was certainly once uh, such a case, uh, was that there was a level of protectiveness emerging from the musicians, emerging from Glenn and the principal cello and the double bass players and uh, and of each and from each principal and um, and I remember Jerry Ashby, Jerome Ashby, a great horn player and um, um, Anthony McGill, the uh, now, who is now principal clarinet of the um, of the uh, New York Philharmonic, and Jerome and Anthony were only the second, uh, the second and third African American musicians to be members of the New York Philharmonic. Right. I mean, you know, and they were playing together uh, with us, uh, Music for Life, before they. Uh, encountered each other. I mean, they never did encounter each other at the Met because Jerry passed away before Anthony joined the orchestra. And, you know, there was something about that which I didn't even realize what was happening. There was this moment of camaraderie. Uh, there was also this 
kind of protectiveness of each other. And all of that is in stark contrast to what we tend to think about as the relationship between conductor and orchestra. Uh, you know, and uh, it was interesting because I realized it wasn't isolated. It wasn't just us because we were doing something great and noble and generous uh, in the interests of uh, the larger human cause. It does happen elsewhere. We just don't know how to see it. Because uh, a few days later, the Berlin Philharmonic showed up. Right. <laughs> 2006. And Simon Rattle had been there for five years. But already still, at that stage of his time, uh, you could see that the Berlin Philharmonic was engaged in this fantastic project of turning Simon Rattle into a great conductor. Mm. He was a fantastic conductor, an incredible person and musician and presence on the podium. But they were they were on this mission to make him, you know, one of the giants. And they succeeded. Uh, but it was this nurturing that an orchestra does of a conductor when uh, all parties sort of allow that to happen. And that was uh, something that, you know, uh, from myself, the idea of being open to that uh, is something that emerged from the conductor's retreat, where, you know, I remember, and you do, you, both of you, I'm sure, will, that Ken Kiesler would often say, your job as a conductor is to receive what the musicians are giving out, to receive what the music itself is giving. And out of what is coming to you, you respond. Right? So you're not instructing, you're not dictating, certainly not dictating. Uh, if you have to instruct or dictate, it means you're not ready to really handle the music yet, because uh, the music emerges from this uh, most central act of listening and receiving. But the receiving part was what was so extraordinary about uh, that experience and the experiences that have come since then. I've just wow. rambled on and on. I'm sorry. There's so much to talk about when you remember oh. these experiences in the context of what really makes music tick and why it's useful for so much that ails our world. I mean, imagine if you know that kind of thinking had pervaded the impeachment trial that we all saw. Ritler, or if that kind of thinking had pervaded the discussion around the election, uh, and you know, and then rendered the impeachment trial, un, you know, irrelevant because there would have been no insurrection. Uh, but the, we we have a long way to go, and you know, this music and this activity can has so much to offer. Uh, in my, I mean, in terms of our very survival. Yeah. So yeah, so I mean, and, and that really leads nicely into uh, 
you know, what happened after that and, you know, your, your the after the humanitarian concert and the formation of Music for Life International. And uh, really, it, it seemed to me from what you were telling me about it that uh, it was just born of, hey, you know, this is something we could keep on doing. And for various extremely good reasons, it's something that's needed in the world. Well, it's interesting. Those, you know, those were some of the very same words uh, that Sir Colin Davis said, used when I saw him again about six months after the concert. Right. And he, he said, you know, I just had a rehearsal with the Philharmonic and they're all still talking about your concert. And I said, they yeah. are. And he, he said, yeah, they seem to have had a good time. And I said, well, he said, you know, you should think about doing it again. And I said, well, uh, there has been some talk. <laughs> and um, so, um, again, to cut a long story short, a friend of mine was working for UNICEF in Darfur, in Sudan. And uh, she said, listen, I heard about what you did. Can, can you do a concert for Darfur? And um, and so we talked, and, you know, and the music that suggested itself was the Verdi Requiem, the Requiem Mass of Giuseppe Verdi. And um, and a year later, a year from the Beethoven Nine for South Asia, we we reconvened right. uh, with uh, a project, a concert called the Requiem for Darfur which was not so much as a few and we were at some pains to explain that it wasn't we weren't thinking of it as a funeral for a people but rather as a uh, an occasion of resilience an occasion of rebirth uh, and 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 mourning where mourning had not been permitted because of the nature of conflict right. and um and you know the you know, with any of these things, if you simply stick around in one place and do it again, uh, these things grow. So where the first concert, the first humanitarian concert had musicians from 17 or 18 uh, orchestras and other organizations, the second one had um, representation now from about 35 or 36 um, different organizations from around the world, including the Berlin Philharmonic, who had uh, requested to participate this time. And, oh, yes. um, and Glenn was back. And Gabe, you were I was back, back in the third, third chairs. And yeah. you were sitting with one of the historic figures from the New York Philharmonic, uh, Sanford Allen. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and awesome. and you know it may, it was something quite special for Sanford because I remember, um, you know, there were um, a number of people from different contexts, and people were sitting in different places, and you know, uh, it was very it was quite special, and we had. You know, in this day and age, uh, we're talking a lot about representation of underrepresented communities in orchestras. 
you know, each of our concerts uh, projects has been a sort of uh, what do you call those things? Um, uh, what is it? Um, instant mob. Uh, where, where there's a term, there's a... No, I don't know. <laughs> what is it? Something mob. It's a... Flash mob? Flash mob. mob. It's uh, like a, a flash mob gathering of a major orchestra, right? Well, so uh, all-star. I used to call it an all-star orchestra. That's really... Yeah, but this is, there's more than all-star because it's not just all-star. It's, it's really a major orchestra with all... A major American orchestra for the most part, even though there are some international elements, uh, with all the issues and complications that appear in such, you know, right. you have to match, you have to have people who are compatible with each other, which means you have to know who they are and, you know, who is, um, uh, who, and you, you know, you put, these are real issues where some of the greatest orchestra managers and orchestral projects in the world have stumbled a little bit in terms of, you know, when they've put, assembled a wind section from, you know, Vienna and uh, New York and uh, God knows wherever else. And the, the musicians have very different ways of, of uh, functioning. And it takes, it can take a very long time to make those things coalesce. Whereas we were quite, you know, we, we we had, we did the obvious thing. We sort of cut the Gordian knot and sort of tried to unravel it and simply said, went to the principal flute and said, who'd like, who would you like to play with? <laughs> <laughs> and he, and uh, Robert Langevin said, oh, can you, you know, maybe we could get the uh, Richard Woodhams, the legendary first oboe of the Philadelphia Orchestra. Right. And uh, we said, well, uh, you know, then of course we would go to uh, to Mr. Woodhams and say, "Hey, uh, Robert Langevin would like to invite you." And he said, "Ooh, that's very nice." Right. And, you know, and the thing was, we, we gathered an ensemble that coalesced within ten minutes. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, if you have um, even disparate players or players of different. Um, you know, where the level, critical mass of the level is different, you can't rehearse that into being. You can over a long, long time, but you can't just, you know, sort out uh, the issues that naturally happen. And they will not be, there will be technical issues where the solutions are not technical. Yeah. You, you can't, you know, you're, you're not going to sort out matters of intonation or sound by rehearsing your way out of it. You can't. There has to be an understanding between people, and um, and it was so that was uh, the requiem for Darfur was our second project, and you know um, I would Gabe and I have talked about this before, but you know I think it'd be useful for the general um, listener to understand. You know, there have been charitable and benefit and humanitarian concerts uh, since the time, uh, you know, somebody found a hollow 
uh, ostrich bone and (laughs) turned it into a flute and said, okay, let's let's do a concert uh, and um, share our elephant meat with the neighboring tribe who have had a bad hunting season or something. (laughs) Exactly. And so there have been humanitarian, there have been benefit charitable concerts uh, for centuries. Uh, in every known, every tradition you care to name, not just Western classical music. Uh, I, we like to think at Music for Life, and we may not be unique, but we certainly are in the minority, where our charitable concerts uh, have a mission that is often, that is always, without exception, driven by the materials of the music and the sound of the music and the actual processes that are unfolding in the music. So when the Verdi Requiem, it was very clear that there was, Verdi was creating this operatic canvas uh, where there were emotional extremes that were real um, mirrors or lenses into the experience of the people who were so traumatized by the experience. The Verdi Requiem was written for as a memorial for great Italian poet Alessandro Manzoni. But if you look at, say, the Libera Me, uh, the last movement of the Verdi Requiem, the soprano comes out, and there's no rhythm, no, you know, she has transcended, I mean, her terror. She says, Libera Me de morte eterna in die tremenda, you know. Uh, and she says, save me from eternal, from a fate worse than death. Uh, and every woman who hears that knows the scream of someone who has, is facing sexual violence. Yeah. Uh, and in all of, you know, this has been a characteristic of modern conflict, and by modern I mean everything in the last 5,000 years, uh, where sexual violence is used as a weapon, a weapon to intimidate, a weapon to threaten, a weapon to make an example of. um, In war and peace, Uh, and, you know, uh, I'm not sure that Verdi meant that the, the soprano soloist to be screaming about sexual violence or rape. But that is what the Darfur, uh, people in the context of Darfur, not just the people you know, who have experienced the, the conflict, but everybody who's thinking about it could hear. And so we, when, when we rehearsed it, I you know, said this to the choir. I said, you know, you have to, you can't, uh, stability of ensemble cannot be the goal of what we do. Uh, the goal is for us to enter into the experience of people who have experienced, who have encountered the most horrific violence, and feel how that destabilizes us and our experience of living. Uh, and um, uh, it was funny because right after that, the soprano soloist comes in, and in the concert, she got 
so into the thing that yes. uh, she jumped a bar. And yes. I remember you were right at the heart of yep. the matter. And she jumped a bar and a half. And Glenn started shaving off 16th notes to reduce transcendent <laughs> <laughs> reason, right? And you say, of course, it's not possible because there's a bar and a half. I mean, it's a lot of 16th notes. You <laughs> but he was doing this. And what was amazing was there were 31 pe people sitting behind him who were all dropping the same 16th notes. Well, I mean, we we saw what he was. I, I mean, it, the the you remember that he was sending back was yeah. was so obvious, and it was like, oh, okay, let's do that. <laughs> but I mean, it, and the whole thing corrected itself within two and a half measures. I mean, we came to a, a breath, and we sorted itself out. But it was this amazing moment, and she was not going to let go. She was going to, she was holding on for dear life, and it wasn't one of these musical things. It wasn't a. She wasn't holding on for dear life because uh, it was because you know she was off by a bar. She was holding on for dear life because the text demanded it and the music demanded it. And if she was holding, if she was in the front of the, you know, we had the soloist standing uh, in at the back of the orchestra next to the chorus in front of the right. chorus. And she was standing in front of me. I have no question. She would have grabbed my hand and she would have drawn blood. I mean, it was that kind of, um, you know, actually, it's funny. Uh, we mentioned the New York Times actually ran a photograph of that moment. Really? On the front <laughs> page of the art section. And it's right, you know, big photograph. And um, what was interesting was, and you can see her, you know, this whole, the orchestra, everybody is just like going at it. And um, and there is this image of this girl uh, projected on the on the wall. Uh, yes. Uh, the back wall. And there's a very famous image of um, of the um, uh, of the uh, Darfur. Uh, you, the United Nations Darfur campaign, and this is the um, yeah. So this is the uh, this is the the image that right the world was familiar with. Yes. So the morning that the photographer went out of the camp, uh, uh, extraordinary photographer called Ron Haviv was. Uh, distinguished photographer. Yeah. Uh, he encountered this girl and the two other young women behind her out gathering firewood outside the gates of the camp. And it's a very dangerous thing to do because there are there are uh, the government-sponsored militants called the Janjaweed um, who are prowling and they could grab you at any time. And there are also lions. Um, <laughs> and so they, um, you know, they, they were out there looking for, for fire, for, for fuel, for firewood and reeds. And I remember at the time, uh, the, the person who spoke to, we had um, UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador Mia Farrow, um, who spoke about the um, the situation because she had been 
going there and taken a special interest and been an ambassador for the people of Darfur. And uh, we had also a man called Jan Egeland, who was the um, uh, United Nations Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs. He, he is now the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Service, Norwegian Refugee Council. Um, and he, he said, you know, uh, that to go out and gather re uh, grass and fuel was a life-threatening thing. And uh, but the women came back, not the not the three in the picture, uh, but the um, the. The women who, uh, of the camp came to him and said, "You must go and sound, sound the alarm when you go back to New York, and you must tell people that uh, that we need help." Yeah. And and he he said, and you know we we're okay here. I mean, in the camp we have a, a little school and we have. You know, we have food, we have drink, we have some medical supplies. We're we're okay, but the 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 people out in the villages are not. And and he said, as a token uh, of their appreciation, so they were choosing to to thank him rather than uh, you know uh, you know re react in this desperate way. They said, we want to thank you for what you are doing and what you continue to do. And they had taken the reeds and the grass, and they had made a basket, hmm. beautifully woven basket. Wow. And they gave it to him. And I, remember, I don't know if you remember. And Jan turned around and said, I would like to give this basket to to you, right? The musicians, and he gave it to me, and yeah. this is the basket. Oh, there, there it is! Yeah. Wow! And you can see the 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 work. It's it's intricate. It's amazing. It's really exquisitely done, and this is le the the leather thongs uh, that um, you know. It's an amazing thing, and. Um, mm -hmm. You know, there. It's. I know we were intending to talk about what, how we can make a difference, and well, you know, music. But yeah. it's also true that music serves us. I mean, music also. You know, is this endless cornucopia of generosity to those of us who. Who uh, who not only practice it but also try to use it for um, to make a difference for the most vulnerable among us. Now you're you're talking really encapsulates every everything we've been talking about. You know, going to Madamek and working on. You know the whole person 
in in order to do this and and doing humanitarian concerts yes to raise funds but also it's an entire experience it has to it comes from the music and goes through the rehearsals in the orchestra and then the audience comes and and yes you know also raising money for it but approaching it from the music first is what i think music for life international is it, it it's the the big difference really it seems we um you know uh, we are uh, those of us who do music as a means of creating social impact or creating um, humanitarian or impact or social justice. We um, we forget that our primary equipment is the actual sound. Yeah. You know, and we think, oh, how can we raise money? How can we raise attention? But what we don't pay attention to is the damn thing we're doing. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it starts at the very beginning, because Verdi is operating from a deep dive into his own personal experience of life. And at that depth where he's operating, uh, or where Beethoven is operating, or where Shostakovich is operating, the resonances between the experiences of these composers and the traditions that they manifest are so universal as to be able to have resonances with all kinds of other experiences of other people. Mm. So the Verdi Requiem begins, you know, with a natural mi do la in the solo cello, la so fa. Right, just octave drop, single instrument. Then it dies, dies, single instrument by itself, single line, dies, and you in that moment. What those of us who were trying to speak and trying to listen for those for the people who are voiceless the people who are isolated like in this pandemic you know people who are dying alone um, is you know you know dying alone is not a natural thing we don't do it elephants don't do it you know they, People, living creatures of some evolutionary magnitude, go, go somewhere, go to be with others. You, you die being born. You're not born alone, and you don't die alone. Mm -hmm. And when 
when a member of a community, whether it's a human community or, or an elephant or a sheep or a, you know, uh, or a wolves, when you die, community gathers. A community makes some kind of ritual experience. And it is in that moment, in the Verdi Requiem, community gathers. And it's a community of winds, the, sorry, community of strings, and a community of voices. And what do they say? They say, Requiem Eterna. Right? Uh, and it is a act of collective mourning, an act of collective acknowledgement of the person who died, the act of collective mourning of the fact that we are all dying, that, uh, that you know, this, like, birth is done, now death and taxes are the only thing that are left. And so we're heading in that direction. Right. I, and there is this, um, it's like, um, you know, what, um, uh, there used to be a radio show on on the NPR, uh, New York Public Radio, called This I Believe. And Leonard Bernstein wrote an essay for uh, various people, uh, public figures wrote essays for to describe what it is they believed. And Bernstein, in the 1960s, wrote an essay uh, saying, this is what I believe. And I believe that we are meant to be together with other people. And I believe that democracy is the expression of that. And I believe that one person standing alone on the mountainside, on a hillside, facing injustice, makes the whole mountain disappear. Hmm. And, wow. and Verdi was not talking about democracy or human rights or anything, or sexual assault or any of those things, Though went deep into his own psyche and the tradition of, of stage and opera of that time, and came up with this manifestation of experience. You know, that who, you know, the next person can probably find something equally central. But I found that when you went, when you dug into the music, you hear um, this res, these resonances, mm. right? And that, and that's what we're missing a lot of the time. Right? You're so busy trying to play the E natural in tune. And try to make sure the conductor's beat is, you know, whatever it is, you know, the conductor's frantically trying to make sure that the next beat is exactly in time so that, you know, the players who are going to play after the beat are not messing up his or her internal rhythm. <laughs> and it's, it's about as far from the point as you can get. Uh, no, we have to play music, not notes. <laughs> no, but the thing is, the technique is that, I mean, you have to play, you, ha you, you know, you can't let. Uh, it is difficult to do these things if the blemishes and the blemishes become a distraction. But yes. the thing is, you, know, um, you have to know, um, like, I, I, I just don't know how anybody can do uh, the very Requiem without 
finding out what Verdi felt about I Promessi Sposi, the, the, the novel that Manzoni was so familiar. I mean, he Manzoni was like the Nelson, like a Desmond Tutu or a Nelson Mandela of the Italian people in 1848. I mean, it was a big deal in the Italian, you know, the voice of uh, Italian nationhood, if you will. Right. We don't even know who this. I mean, I don't know how many conduct, people who sing or conduct the Verdi Requiem have bothered to find out <laughs> about yeah, too much about him. Right? Yeah. This is, but the thing is, you can't do the you can't do the Verdi Requiem without knowing uh, all the Verdi operas of that time. And you can't understand. And you 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 you'll have to understand that in the Verdi operas, if you follow the metric of the actual text of the lyrics. Forget the music, throw the music out altogether. If you just follow the meter in the words and the poetry, that right. tells you all you need to know about the social standing and the particular social relationships between the characters. Right. Because certain people of a certain, uh, of a certain social standing don't speak in eight syllables. They speak in seven syllables, and if the other people are speaking in seven syllables, then you've got a. There's somebody's not telling the truth. It's something. <laughs> they're horrible. not wearing. They're not dressed right, or something. And <laughs> you don't know that, right? When you're listening to Traviata, you don't know that. Uh, for the most part, we don't even. We bear, a lot of us to barely know the the, the words. Uh, no, but uh, but but you definitely feel it. That's for sure. You can hear it if you're listening, but that means you have to go deep into the thing. And I remember, you know, Glenn telling me when we were going over the music, he said, you know, the last time I, he said, this is so wonderful to go into this music to extract what it means. Because he said, I mean, to be honest, I haven't done this since, since Bernstein was here. Oh, wow. And it was a pain. He said it yeah. wasn't easy either. It was hard work because you, right. you know, and it meant sometimes that the music did funny things in, you know, and people assumed that you know Bernstein was being, um, you know, capricious or he was being, but he wasn't. He was going inside the music, and that. You know, it, it all it, they always manifest in different ways with different different artists. But the thing is that, uh, and you can't do it with everything. You know, right. you can't do it with. I mean, you you have to go in and in and in and in, and somewhere. Uh, I believe uh, the key is if you listen. In the same way that we learned at Madomic to receive from the orchestra, right. the music will tell you what to do. I remember Colin Davis saying this. He said, you know, just listen to the music, man. It'll, it, it, it's quite good, you know. Yes, I remember. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and right. it'll, it'll always tell you what to do. And I remember one time I got into real trouble. It was a very direct way. And we, you know, we we weren't raising enough money. We were, you know, we were short fifty grand or something. And I was holding the whole thing in my hands. And uh, and I and I said, um, I called him up and I said, you know, we have a. I'm scrambling with this thing, and I don't quite know. I'm not asking you for money, but I, I 
sort of scratching my head. I was, I was asking everybody. Um, and he said, well, really seems to have gotten you in a bit of a pickle. <laughs> so I said, yes, he has. I said, what you, and he said, what are you going to do? I said, I'm not sure. He said, I said, what do you think? He said, well, Verdi got you into trouble. Go to Verdi. Ask him to get you out. Yeah. So I did. Uh so I went to Verdi, and I said, uh, uh, how do I get out? And you know, that's where I saw that thing about the, the opening. That's uh, where I found out about the Liberame. That's where I found out. Those things became markers of why our, you know, if you remember, our performance had was not uh, short of blemishes. Yeah. Had a few blemishes. In yeah. fact, uh, the New York Times reviewer uh, yeah. <laughs> said, said some, you know, snippy things, but they were, the point was, you know, uh, the blemishes were not the point. Right. In fact, the blemishes were the point. Some of the blemishes were, in fact, more loaded with meaning than if the mm. performance had been without blemish. Yes. There were moments where, you know, uh, where things happened and they became galvanizing moments for the community on stage. Right. Uh, uh, you'll remember one of our very distinguished principal players uh, came in, you know, two bars early and was the only person playing. Yes. And, <laughs> you know, and it, it was one of those moments where you said, wow, what, you know, and then you realize uh, he's gone out on a limb. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so. Right, right. Anyway. Uh, so, I, We've gone. We've sort of rambled on. I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm curious here. You know, I we've known each other for a long time, and I know you don't know this, but every now and then I kind of pop into your life. I, I check you out on YouTube. I watch your TED talk. I, I I check out some videos, see what you're up to, and I'm curious here. After hearing you for the last couple minutes. Um, I saw an interview, if I remember this correctly, that says when you first came over here, it was to study biology of some <laughs> and And I was thinking about that because about an hour ago, you had mentioned Beethoven 9 and how in Beethoven 9, it asks a question and then swipes their hand and asks another question, swipes a hand. And then you started talking about the Beethoven 9 concert and started talking about defer and Mahler II and Bertie Requiem. Do you feel that you're still studying life here? Do you feel that you found the answer? Do you do you feel that you're still looking for the answer to studying biology of humans, of sound, of music, of what makes us want to conduct? And if so, how does that possibly relate to Madomic and some of the great stuff that Ken has taught us all? You know, um, we were all students at Madomic. Mm. None of us was the the Buddha under the tree dispensing wisdom. We were all the ones who were sitting at the feet of the master, or the masters. And 
uh, you know, as life goes on, we, you, all three of us have more gray hair than we did then. And all three of us uh, have crossed a, a, an interesting um, articulation point, if you will, in our lives. Mm. And that is that we have some uh, uh, less experienced people in our care. We have some shorter, for the most part, though not <laughs> long probably, uh, human beings who come to us presumably every day and say, huh, how does this work? Right. <laughs> Are we there yet? <laughs> Can I, uh, I'm hungry or, um, or my, or as I've begun to hear recently, uh, my, is my A string out of tune? Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and this is the other side of things, you know, that we are always engaged in the process of learning and teaching and receiving and giving. And, you know, we, we're all fortunate to have been uh, full participants in the great biology of being uh, human and mm. being having children uh, and uh, you know, my children are um, uh, biracial uh, more than biracial tetraracial tetra <laughs> <laughs> and um, they, you know, they live in a world that I observe from outside and try to guide them through. And uh, and I'm sure yours, uh, each of your children is different from you know, the par their parents in really central, profoundly fundamental ways. And um, and I find them to be as uh, as eye-opening teachers as any people I have ever encountered. You know, Ken or um, you know, I think of the, the the various people that I've encountered and looked up to, including the great masters we encounter through their music. Uh, so it's an ongoing process. You, if you look around, you see these people who uh, and situations. And um, uh, today we found, we saw, my wife and I were out on a walk and we saw this family of deer out in our neighborhood. You know, I, I think, Jeff, you know something about suburban deer. And uh, there was this uh, young mother who, you know, was, I think, having her first, because she, we've been following this deer, uh, been showing up for a while, and she had two young fawns. They had little spots and everything. But today we saw them, and there were three deer of the same size. 
and we said, hey, I think this is the mother and the two babies. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at some point the babies got rambunctious and, you know, but they were all the same size and they were radically different in personality than the mother. And it was, and when they eventually got close and they were the same size, eventually got close and we could see the remnants of spots, of white spots on the, on the front. And I thought, wow, that's, I said, that's not terribly different from human children. Um, and you know, and she was concerned that we were getting too close. And she was concerned that, you know, they were on the wrong side of, of a tree or um, too near the road or whatever it was. And I thought, huh, um, it's not just, uh, it's not just, you know, people who are suffering from the stigma of HIV AIDS who might find resonance in Mahler, might be Mother Dear and her children. It might, it, you know, the connections are deeper, are deep. You know, I don't know if I answer your question. The thing is, these relationships and these insights, uh, A, show up everywhere. Otherwise, we drive ourselves in crazy that we didn't get the assistant conductor job of the Philadelphia Orchestra or whatever it is. Uh, because at the end of the day, it's the music that makes us tick. If anybody's looking to uh, get in touch with you, follow you, uh, is there a social media, is there a website that you'd be happy to uh, share with everybody? Well, I'm on Twitter, uh, believe it or not, as jo at George Matthew. <laughs> One T, no S. And I must have been one of the early George Matthews because they, I got in there and I just simply added my name to the mix. And I'm, so it's just George Matthew, one word, no, um, uh, no space. And uh, I'm also on Facebook. <laughs> right. Well, George, thank you so much for your time. This is definitely going to be part one of our series. And if you guys out there have any questions for George, please let us know. You can find everything over at gabrielgordon.net. We will, of course, have all the links to George's great videos, the, the amazing TED Talk, all the great stuff that's going on. Uh, George, my friend, thank you so much, and thank you for stopping by the podcast. And one more time, of course, you know, we want to say thank you to George Matthew for spending the time and sharing his thoughts. And, you know, Gabe, I hope that uh, this is only the first conversation with him, and I hope that we get a chance to do more stuff. Uh, I had a chance to meet George a couple times in Madomic. I honestly think this is the first time I've gotten all three of us on the same conversation at once. Um, what right. an amazing, amazing guest, Gabe. Yeah, he's he's a, a brilliant, brilliant person uh, who really sees into all the depths of music and really dives deep. And there's so much that we didn't even get a chance to to discuss, and I hope certainly that we do. And, you know, it, it made me think a lot more about Madomic. And I know we're going to do a Madomic show and maybe get some people on, and, you know, hopefully we'll get some uh, some other Madomic friends to come on the show in here. But uh, we want to say thank you guys out there. I know it was a longer show than, than you're used to from the art of listening. But if you have any questions, please reach out to us over on our website, gabrielgordon.net. And, of course, we're going to be sharing all this stuff over on our Twitters and our websites. Check out that stuff. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this with everybody out there who's a conductor, fan of music, listener of Beethoven 9, or anybody who loves to hear 
the Verity Requiem. We would love to have you guys. Gabe, um, on behalf of everybody here, I think that's a, that's a good way to kind of end the show. And uh, what are your last closing thoughts about everything here? We, we went through a lot with George just now. Really? And and the I think the overall theme here is uh, <laughs> every, everything is connected. Who you are on in life is who you are on the podium, and that projects into the orchestra, um, which then projects into uh, all coming from actually the music, and that projects into the audience and, and into the world, and it's really all connected uh, through our ears and listening and what this channel is all about. Really. So we want to say thank you guys. And on behalf of everybody here, we hope that you guys check out our episode next week. And until then, enjoy the music.